Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And today I am coming to you with a guest interview. Today's guest is Matt Vincent. Matt has a very interesting story, and I think it translates to just about everybody. And specifically, I think his mindset is really interesting. I tried to really dig into that when we talked about it. The podcast episode is almost two hours long, so we talked about a lot of things, but his mindset and the way he just kind of approaches life and approaches difficulties and things, I think is very unique and something that a lot of people could take some value from or learn something from. So I'm really excited to share this one to all my listeners, whether you're a runner, strength athlete, health and fitness nerd, or whatever reason you're coming to this podcast for. So uh, I'm excited to introduce you to Matt. A little bit of background on Matt. He started out his athletic career as a track and field athlete at LSU. At LSU, he threw shot put, discus, and hammer. And after that ended, he transitioned into a career as a Highland Games athlete. And he was quite good at it. So he ended up winning it twice and then was runner up two times after that. But after that stretch of success, he ended up getting a knee injury. And this knee injury went from kind of a little bit of a road bump to quite a journey for him. He ended up having to have surgery on that knee eight times after that injury post Highland games runner up. And the last one was essentially an entire knee replacement. So Matt had a lot of transition to go from a world-class athlete to someone who could barely walk. And this really, I think, created an interesting dynamic for him as a person, a lot of lessons that he learned. And he just shares some really, really good mindset tips that I think are just going to be really, really good for anyone who wants to get some motivation from that. We talked about a ton of things. This podcast episode went almost two hours long. I was incredibly grateful. My friends at Austin Fitness Community and Josh Job let us record in their studio. So we got some pretty good audio and video quality stuff. If you're interested in the video, check that one out at YouTube. If you're here on audio, uh, just know that Austin Fitness Community was kind enough to let us borrow their studio so I could sit down in person with Matt while I get stuff set up at the house we have here in Austin now. A few other topics that we touched on in this episode includes how Matt started his business that is just thriving today. It's called Hate Brand, not spelled hate as an H-A-T-E, but H-V-I-I-I, letter H, Roman numeral eight. And there's an interesting story behind that that I will wait for Matt to share during the episode itself. We talked about a huge project that he's doing with Indian motorcycles, where he's going to be touring essentially the entire country at a certain point uh, on four occasions, actually, over the course of the next year, what he's doing now in terms of health and fitness, and uh, just a bunch of other things. And I actually got to one point asking him when he's going to do his first ultra marathon and if he's going to let me coach him for it. So tune into this episode and find out if we'll see Matt on an ultra marathon course somewhere down the road. He is about 70 pounds lighter than he was in his Highland games days. So he's a little speedier, I think, than maybe he would have been back then for the longer distance stuff. So, uh, you'll have to tune into that part of the episode and, and find out what his thoughts are about, about that specifically. 
All right. Before we get going, just a few announcements. If you want to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast, there's a few ways that you can do that. One is simply by subscribing, liking, and sharing these episodes by spreading the word to other folks, your friends and family. It helps me grow the podcast, which creates just more opportunities to do more episodes. You can do that on your favorite podcast listening platform or over on YouTube. And that is where you'll get the video version of the show. If you'd like to support monetarily, there's a few ways to do that as well. One would be to support the show's Patreon page. If you support the show's Patreon page, you do get access to early release episodes. So you can listen to them much sooner from when I record it to when I actually release it to all the platforms. And you also get an ad-free experience. We cut right to the chase and get right into the topics. Uh, You can do all of that at my website, zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. There's a link to the show's Patreon page there. Also, if you don't want to join a third-party platform like Patreon, but you'd like to support the show with a donation, you can do that at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO as well. There's a button on that site. All you got to do is click it and it'll let you submit a donation with a credit or debit card. Uh, So it's a little easier, no third party. All right. The last way to support the show is through the show sponsors. The show sponsors for this particular episode include my friends at Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens makes a product that they call AG1. And AG1 is a powder that you can pour into six to eight ounces of water. It is packed with 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. It's best to take this on an empty stomach. I like to have it first thing in the morning before I have my first cup of coffee and start the day out right. If you buy a pack of their AG1 flagship product with uh, the HPO URL, which is athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO, they will also give you a one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2. It's just this little bottle. You put a couple drops in with your AG1 in that six to eight ounces of water and you get that extra extra bit of uh, vitamin D3 and K2. They'll also throw in five travel packs. So if you're on the go and you want to bring your AG1 with you, they've got some single serving packets that they're going to throw in there for you too. If you order that first pack with athleticgreens.com forward slash APO. Another cool thing about Athletic Greens is they support a program called No Kid Hungry in the U.S., it gets uh, supports sustainable and healthy nutrition for kids in need through your purchases. So you can rest assured knowing that you are helping that program out with your purchase as well as Athletic Greens being a climate neutral certified product with every purchase. Also supporting the show are my friends at Element. Element makes these easy to use single serving packets of electrolytes. Each packet contains a thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. I like to mix a single packet in roughly two liters worth of water or liquid. They have a variety of different flavors from fruity flavors like citrus, watermelon, and they also have some more savory flavors like chocolate, which I love to put in my coffee in the morning. And it's some spicy flavors too, if you want to throw them in a travel bag and use them at a restaurant or when you're traveling to sprinkle on food, kind of like a little bit of extra spicy salts to add to your dish. They are offering a free trial to anyone who is listening to this podcast. So if you want to get an eight pack for free, 
All you have to do is pay the $5 shipping charge by going to drink L M N T that's drink capital L capital M capital N capital T.com forward slash H P O. And you will get access to that free trial of eight flavor sample packs of element electrolytes for any of the show sponsors. You can just head to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. And I have all the lists, discounts, and links provided there for all the show sponsors. So if it's easier for you to remember, head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, that's it. Let's get into the show with my friend, Matt Vincent. What's up, man? How's it going, buddy? Dude, back in Austin. Excited yeah, to be here. I was just t- talking to Josh before. I've been in Austin for almost six weeks now, and I think this is like the second or third time you've been in town. <laughs> man, I uh, I stay on the move mm-hmm. um, and, and have for a long time. And uh, clearly, that's what I enjoy doing is bouncing from place to place. So it keeps me fired up. I get I love seeing what other people are doing and doing other shows and being in studio. I there's only so many zoom podcasts I can stomach. I'd way rather travel. Yeah, no, I hear you. I do most of mine through zoom. And then every time I do one in person, I'm like, God, I got to get a setup where I can do more in-person recording. And as part of the reason Austin made sense, cause it's just turning in kind of a bit of a podcast hub. So it's becoming a, an everything hub. Yeah. It's, it's sure. really impressive. Yeah. And what's kind of happened in the last two years. And it was nuts before that. And so watching Austin boom right now is it's great. I can, I can justify a trip here basically at all times. Yeah. Have you, did you live in Austin for a while? Never. No. Just no. like coming here quite a bit? Yeah. A lot of yeah. friends. And- a lot of friends between, um, you know, worked for Onnit now for the last five or so years. And so um, friends with that community, mm-hmm. I've worked with their fit for service group that Aubrey has. And it's been great. It, it's always been a place that I'm, I'm interested in. I, I, I like spending time here. And yeah. I could, this is a place I'd be interested to live, but I like traveling here and going home. Yeah, no doubt. Did you do the fit for service in Sedona? Was that end of 2020, I think? I did the one they hosted here uh, in Austin. I had a chance to come in and help out and MC the um, the Warrior Games oh, that sweet. they had. So it was fun. So yeah. I got a chance to MC and keep energy up and run around like a maniac. Yeah, I just, the only reason I even know fit for service was uh, when they did it in Sedona. Justin had just been part of that for the first time. Justin Wren, for folks wondering, and uh, uh, he had he knew I was down in Phoenix at times. So he was like, "Oh, I should come up for a day or so." And I came up there and hung out for a little bit, and it seemed like a pretty cool setup there. Pretty had. cool setup. Were they at Aubrey's place in Sedona? Yeah, they they did a lot of different things around kind of the city, just because there's so many kind of goofy things you can do in Sedona with uh, right. with all the trails and stuff. But yeah, they were kind of at Aubrey's place. So. Right. Yeah, really cool. Um, yeah, what brings you to Austin this time? So this trip to Austin was uh, coming back to see Justin as we've got a project coming up with Indian Motorcycles. Uh, last year, I did this really fun trip with Indian through uh, my friends Steffi Cohen and Hayden Bow. I don't know if you're aware of them, but mm-hmm. they exist in the strength powerlifting side of things. And uh, Steffi's an incredible human. She's probably one of the best female, or is the best female powerlifter of all time, in my opinion. I pulled 516 at like 115 pounds body weight as a female, just incredible squats over 500 pounds and then transition now to boxing and mm-hmm. they run an incredible business with hybrid and, and nonetheless. And so they, uh, work with Matt Frazier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Indian works with Matt Frazier. They put together a trip. I got 
fourth wheel invite <laughs> on a thing to show up as like, I can ride a motorcycle. I can talk on camera. Yes, I'll fill that gap. And yeah. so had a great time, hit it off with a guy from Indian. And um, since we've done a lot of YouTube content and travel and stuff like that, we pitched a show. And uh, Epic Pursuits is going to be the name of it. We're showcasing one of their new bikes. It'll be on Indian's YouTube channel. And um, the first trip's going to be in March. We'll do Charleston, South Carolina, all the way to the tip of the Keys. And catch like Daytona Bike Week in the Midway. Do like the Old South mm-hmm. stuff through Savannah and Charleston. And then Daytona. And then we're doing a swamp tour in the Everglades. Go show off some alligators since that's more my more my neck of the woods growing up in Louisiana. Uh-huh. And then down to the Keys. And, and finally the most southern point of the U.S. Which I've never been. So I can go ahead and tick that box. And it's myself, uh, Steffi Cohen, Justin Wren, uh, my buddy Nick Kumalatsos, who's a Marsoc, uh, former... Marine Raider. I'm not sure if they use former, but whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> great guy. Runs another company. Um, uh, Raider Project. Has a big YouTube following. Just dude I've known for a long time. We've traveled to Iceland together, and so having him on the trip is going to be a lot of fun. So that's what I'm here for is come see Justin, talk about that. I know yesterday he was out getting motorcycle license and doing all that <laughs> stuff. So, like, I'm just very happy he's he's on board and stoked. So I was just going to say, Justin looks like a guy who could ride a motorcycle, but I wasn't sure if he ever had or not. But Well, that was a question I had. I was like, have you ever <laughs> ridden a bike? And he's like, oh, in the Congo. I'm like, you'll be fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, whatever they had him on there in the Congo, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> Dude, the bikes from Indian, um, these baggers, uh, as not a motorcycle guy, Mm-hmm. What an interesting experience it was getting to ride on one of these. Yeah, it's, it, it's just so comfortable and perfect and and tons of horsepower. And then I, it, radio stations and navigation, it's about as easy a process as being on a bike without it being, uh, again, I'm not a motorcycle guy. So like, I don't have anything to prove about my back hurting getting somewhere because the back the bike, the bike looks beautiful. Yeah. I want the experience of traveling at 70 miles an hour strapped to this engine. Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. And you're doing four different trips with that? Four trips, yeah. So we've got the first one will be in March. We do another early May. And that one will be like San Francisco to Joshua Tree. Oh, sweet. And then the third one is going to be uh, Seattle to Portland. But we'll go around through like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and Missoula, and then back to Portland. And then the final one we're looking at is something like Buffalo through the Adirondacks and into like Maine. Oh, nice. So you're going to see basically all four corners. Of Very the excited about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a great excuse for me to get to go no do kidding. this adventure. <laughs> yeah. And you just said you like kind of bouncing around a lot. So that's right up your alley. I sure. love it. I love it. We've, we've road tripped and done a ton. Uh, for the last probably four or five years, we've done at least at least a month to help. We did a two month road trip in my truck, uh, myself, my media guy, Brant, my, my girlfriend, Bonnie. Mm-hmm. And so just cruise around the country. We go see friends. I've been lucky enough to have a bunch of rad people in different places to go hang out in their universes. Yeah, no doubt. You see a lot of variants, I'm sure from one person to the next when you're traveling around like that. And I, you know, I always, uh, I always think about that. Cause like when I, I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin for 20 years and I was teaching there for five years before I moved out to California, eventually Phoenix and now Austin. So I've bounced around a fair bit in the last decade and you know, when I was teaching, I'd have a student every once in a while who would be like, yeah, you know, I've never left the county. Like what? <laughs> and it's just like the, your perspective of like the world and life and people in general are going to, is going to be pretty like myopic if you're never left the county or the state or something like that. So I, I travel such a, a, a 
for me, I, I guess the first time like that switch got flipped for me would have been in college, like mm-hmm. uh, competing track and field at LSU because we traveled a ton. Mm-hmm. And I got to explore cities and play around and do all this type of stuff. And, you know, luckily for track, because we're traveling like 100 kids uh-huh. and there's not enough coaches, they really give you a lot of leeway. Yeah. And it's like, you're free to do whatever you want. We don't have curfew. We're not checking on you. But if you're stupid, you'll just never travel again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you'll lose that path. Right. And, and, and so... <laughs> It was, uh, it was cool getting to see all the cities. And then once I got out of that in a, a few years and finally into kind of a career, I was traveling doing outside sales. So I was spending 70,000 miles in my truck and flying a lot. And so it's never quit. I'm so used to now like, oh, okay, so I have four flights this month. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything of it. Yeah, I mean, you just have like a lot of uh, upgrades to first class, I'm sure. At this point. <laughs> I've got a lot of airline miles. I have, I have a fair share of airline miles. I mean, we, we finished that trip in... Miami on like March 15th and then uh, myself Brant and Bonnie my team we fly to Patagonia on the 17th and I'm home the 26th like I don't have time to go home and reset after a six-day production shoot to go on a trip to Patagonia for a week Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think like traveling is one of the reasons why I kind of fell in love with ultra running originally was and my wife as well it was like you have these opportunities to race in cool areas around the world and you get invited and someone you you win a few races and someone pays for it and it's just like yeah why wouldn't I do that and why wouldn't I do that (laughs) (laughs) it's like even if I blow up at this race it's going to be a worthwhile trip so it it makes it makes a lot of fun to to see all that stuff but yeah, same experience for the Highland Games. Mm-hmm. It was like getting to travel as a pro in that, like such an interesting loophole of athletics. But I mean, we got, I would get to compete like 20 times a year, mm-hmm. which I like the travel aspect of it. And then, I mean, there's prize money every weekend. They pay for our flights in the pro class. And I mean, I've gotten the chance to compete in France and Iceland and Canada and a bunch of other different, you know, a handful of different countries and everywhere around the U.S. It's, it was a great window mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think like when when people wonder about like me running 100 mile races and stuff like that, how do you end up doing that? Like what's the like pathway to that? Or like how do people get into it is another question. It's like, well, I feel like everyone time, every time I talk to someone, there's like a different path that they took. There's some similarities and it's starting to normalize a little bit. But I would imagine like the Highland Games athletes, they probably have an athletic background of some sort that's not the Highland Games and they end up kind of heading that way. Is that Was that the case for you? 100%. I I would consider Highland Games as one of those, like the top 20 dudes in the world are all bad throwers from college. (laughs) Define bad, because I'm thinking like me throwing a shop. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Well, defining good would be there's a place good throwers go called the Olympics, Mm -hmm, uh, where we weren't invited. (laughs) (laughs) Really? No, No, not quite. (laughs) You don't just give those tickets out? (laughs) Yeah, so we got to do that sport, man. Um, I knew it existed due to being a thrower in college. I had a coach that uh, had known about it, and so I was a little bit familiar. But at that time, 2001, 2002, you don't know how to find any of the games. And then finally, as more information, social media, stuff like that, I I found a strongman contest to do, and then powerlifting meets. And then one of the guys we were doing strongman with had done a Highland Games, and then there was one in Louisiana. And so Mm -hmm. myself, my brother, and another strongman pro at the time, Travis Ortmeyer, went and – I competed as an amateur, performed really well, and then found more games to go do. Just immediately started making friends there of like, where can I find more of this? Yeah. <laughs> and so it took off from there. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's interesting. And and you did shot put and discus at LSU? or Shot, disc, and hammer. And I hammer, okay. Very average at all three. 
Okay, but all three average of those makes you a decent Highlands game. Maybe a person. very good Highland Games guy. I, you know, and with the Highland Games, it's nine events. And so mm-hmm. you have two stones like the shot put, two weights you throw for distance, uh, a 56 and a 28-pound 20, weight. Um, you have two hammers you throw, a heavy and a light. You've got a 56-pound weight you throw up and over a bar. And then you've got the caber, which is the one most people are familiar with, with the telephone pole. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, kind of an event that pops in and out is called the sheaf. And so it's like a 20-pound burlap bag that you would throw for height over a bar with a pitchfork. Mm-hmm. So I traveled with a pitchfork around <laughs> the world as well. Did TSA care much about that? Or? <sighs> you know, you just check it. And yeah. you, you put a bag over the top of it and you cover the tines with tennis balls or whatever it is to, to keep it from poking stuff yeah and a pipe insulation on the shaft and my experience is whatever the lady or person at the counter asked is that a i just said yes yeah is it a that trident? hockey stick yeah. yep <laughs> are you playing lacrosse sure thing yeah, yeah it's interesting because i think you know i had some buddies who did decathlon in college and like in college the resources are there you know the university has all the equipment all the training facilities and things like that but then when you finish, it's like, what do you do? And he did some like double decathlons and things like that. He kind of stayed in the university system as a coach and stuff. So he had access to it. But I would imagine prepping for the Highland Games is an adventure of it in and of itself because it's like you're not just going to chop down a phone pole so you can throw that around. Like, how do you actually prepare? Are there like training facilities that are structured towards Highland Games? or Not that I've ever been. Okay. Uh, not and that you would I've know because you're a yeah. two-time champion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not that I've ever been. Yeah. Um, so I once I got kind of back into lifting, um, I pretty quickly started acquiring things to build a home gym. And so <clears throat> started building a home gym, training strongman, quickly got obsessed with that. And then very within a year or so, my garage now has seven or eight Atlas stones, a yoke, farmer's handles, logs. And all of that. And so this is like 2007. So no one sells any of this equipment yet. So mm-hmm. we're making all of it. Like there's people that sell stone molds, but we're we're pouring them and doing that and welding logs and welding yokes and finding people to help and had a, had a great time with it. Um, trained that for a long time. And as soon as I did the Highland Games, I'm, I'm so much better suited for that sport. Continuing to chase the others would be a mistake. And mm-hmm. so you just start acquiring equipment just like anything else. And so I trained in my garage by myself and then threw in a field about a quarter mile from my house by myself for about 10 years. Yeah. That's awesome. And what year did you first do the Highland Games? Uh, my very first competition would have been like November of 2009. And then I did my first full season in 2010. I won an amateur world championship in 2010 and then won another in 2011 got an invite to the professional world championships after winning the amateur one which was supposed to be the next year and instead was in two weeks mm. and so eh, let's go <laughs> yeah. uh so went up to loon mountain took second at pro worlds my uh you know third year in the games and went to it from there won uh the professional world championship in 2012 took second in 13 one in 14 and 15 and second and took second Okay. Yeah. Wow. So you got off to a hot start. Hot start. <laughs> burned out. Burned out quick there when the knee fell apart. That's right. I was. I. I. I think I did maybe six hours worth of podcast research on you in the last twenty four hours just to make sure I had some. Didn't all ask right. all of the same questions as the. As I know you've been around on a few shows at this point, but uh, it's it, it's interesting to me that I mean you had like what eight knee surgeries was it? Um. Yeah. Eight. 
eight within a three-year window. I had an ACL in college that I did too, which I would count as nine, but mm -hmm. I, I don't really, I don't know if you count it, but sure. Yeah. So nine total on the right knee, uh -huh. nowhere else. <laughs> Just the right knee. Just the right knee. Everything it, else is good OEM parts. Yeah. Is that something specific with throwing that that right knee got a lot more abuse or was it just like a weak spot on you that happened to get exposed or? You know, I don't think historically within the sport that like right knees wear out more than anything else. It's, it's a pretty abusive sport. <clears throat> You're creating a lot of torque and, you know, ideally the more that you can wrap and get behind something to push into the ground to accelerate it is what you're trying to do. So there's tons of torque and twisting. I mean, like one of the ways you would coach people is like turn the right foot. The more you can turn the right foot, push the knee in, push the hip, lead the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And so it just always torque. Plus we're throwing on grass and I tore my ACL in college, got it fixed. And then I tore it again, uh, 2005 or so at a skate park. Uh, when I owned a bike shop, <clears throat> at a skate park and, Tore it, dodging a little kid that had rolled out in front of me. Oh, jeez. Uh, I'm sure he's never aware. Little kid, I would. I think there's just been a pink, pink mist yeah. that I'd gone through him <laughs> at that time. Uh, <clears throat> and so, yeah, did got back, uh, competed the whole time without an ACL. And so probably didn't help the longevity of things. Sure. But it never hurt until it got bad. Mm -hmm. And tore a, mes tore a meniscus in... May of 2016 and then decided like at the end of that season, I'll go ahead and do the ACL, fix the knee, get some long-term health benefits and, uh, you know, take a year off to fully rehab it, be smart and then get back to the games. And well, here we are not back at the games. Yeah. Uh, didn't go as planned. It was, uh, eight more surgeries that just, my body doesn't care for cadaver tissue as I've now learned. Hmm. And, um, just, just rejected it, just ate it. Yeah, I just ate it. We'd go back in after three months of rehab, and they're like, well, the ACL's not there, and start over. And then start over. I mean, I did – I had a couple stretches. I mean, all four ACL surgeries were done in a little over 18 months. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then I walked around with – I traveled and walked around with a cane mm -hmm. for a year and a half uh, in really bad chronic pain. Oh, man. Yeah, that's got to be just a kind of a, at the time, I'm sure very challenging, but also a life lesson that you probably lean on to some degree because you go from one of the best athletes in the world, essentially, in your given sport to you know, walking around in a cane. You never envision yourself in that position when you're competing at the Highland Games that, hey, in, a, in two years, I'm going to be needing something to help me get around versus by my own power. Uh, unbelievable change. Um, the... Yeah, the, the development and gift that has come from that injury is only through hindsight, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the heat of it when it's bad and like, I can't walk up and down stairs anymore. I can't step with my right foot up a curb. It just won't. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm basically walking around on like a locked out leg, but I've not stopped traveling. I've not stopped doing any of the things that keep my universe running, whether that's sure. the apparel brand or any of the other type of stuff or YouTube or whatever the content is. And so it, uh, was, it was a rough window, man. It was a really, really rough, dark window of, uh, dealing with that and the dealing of the loss of identity mm -hmm. of an athlete. You know, I knew the Highland games thing would be over one day. That's, you know, that's how it works, but not being athletic anymore and kind of having all that stripped away was such a hard thing. I just, I felt normal. Mm -hmm. I really wasn't into it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think of it like when I was in my twenties, I think I always envisioned like it would be, it's going to be terrible the day I can no longer compete in running. Like there's just, there's nothing else I care about as much as that. Uh, like, what am I going to do? I'm gonna have to figure something out between now and then kind of a mentality. And then, uh, I think maybe a few years ago, I got to a point where I still love doing it, but I'm also at peace with like other things I could potentially do with my time if I could no longer run anymore. But all of those options involve me moving. So, <laughs> so like it's, it's a lot more difficult. I always say like whenever I get, I've been really fortunate with injuries, so I haven't had to deal with this too much with running. But I always think of like, if you decide to stop something, that's one thing. Cause you made that choice. You can just settle with that in your mind and say, Hey, this is my decision. I'm done with this. I'm moving on new chapter. When your body kind of just says, no, you can't do this. It's like someone's telling you what to do or what you can't do. And that never sits well. That's not ideal for the athlete, especially guys like us that aren't team sports, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, the whole thing's on me. Yeah. And what do you mean? I can't do this. Um, yeah, it was tough. Like I knew the time would come. And so I, I'm expecting like, oh, that'll finish and I can get back into more mountain biking or doing other stuff, lose some weight, try new things. Mm -hmm. um, but I was really banking on athletic ability still being there. Yeah. Uh, mobility or anything else. And when that was gone, it really hit that perspective. But now on the other side of it, luckily enough, after the total knee replacement and back doing tons of stuff, can't do Highland Games. I can't lift heavy anymore and that's cool that chapter's over and that's great and and like you said you know having that decision taken away most likely was beneficial for me i, I don't think i would have walked out on my own power away from the sport mm -hmm. like i i think i would have eventually just got frustrated and thrown worse and then eventually got spit out the back end by not being able to compete well enough and then i'd be a lot more years behind starting the current path i'm on Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I'm here. Yeah, you've definitely got a lot of fire irons in the fire, I would say. <laughs> so I'm always curious about kind of how that all plays out because a lot of times these things feed into one another, but at the same time, they're unique enough where they require their own amount of focus. And, you know, you have Hate Your Apparel brand. Um, you have your YouTube channel. Now you're going to be doing the Indian bicycle thing and everything else that's going on in your life. Uh, did that stuff, was that stuff already kind of developed when you were doing the Highland Games or was that kind of a product of the awareness that was kind of given to you through the Highland Games? So it, it really built very organically. Um, you know, I started filming throwing training and lifting like on a flip cam to share with the other 10 idiots doing the thing that I'm doing because <laughs> we don't have any other person to reference. There's no coaching. So we're all trying to figure it out. And so we're sharing everything we can. Um, Somehow I end up turning that into writing a blog. Mm -hmm. And so writing a blog, talking about travel and the sport and training. And, you know, I made a caber out of a bunch of two by sixes and shared that information um, and started building a little bit of a following. And so uh, prior to my first season as a pro, I wrote a book on how to train for the games because I didn't think there was any great information out on it or any. And so that did well enough. And then one of the things I wrote about in the book was the hate, which was kind of my own mantra of why I'm driven to do what I do. And it's, yeah, I don't tolerate my own bullshit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm, I want to find those weak parts of me and hunt them down and get rid of them. You know, those are drag. Those are things slowing me down in the system. And I want to keep moving forward as fast as I can. And, 
I got to be willing to acknowledge those weak spots of like, whether my diet's not good enough or my routine isn't good enough, or I'm not taking care of all the things I can control. Mm -hmm. And so that turns into selling some shirts. Uh, and at some point there filming training and stuff, I start talking to the camera, which then turns into vlogging and did that for a couple years on a daily basis while all in it before really winning any world championships. Um, and then continued the whole time. I've just never stopped. Once once I started doing any of the things, whether it was YouTube, podcast, um, making content or shirts, I, I knew the rule that athletics had given me about getting good at a thing, and it takes 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so I can't expect there to be anything different for the next chapter. Like, yo, if you want mastery, we better start sowing those seeds now because this will be done and we shouldn't, just stop one to start the next. Let's right. keep some transition in between the few things. And so I just never quit doing any of those as they've also been great. Like I've been able to make a living uh, on my own since 2017 doing the things I do. And seems to be, there's enough of them that, yeah. that equal a job that, that pay well enough that I get to live the life I want to. Yeah, no, I hear you. I think with uh, the parallels between Highland games and ultra marathon running is that they're fun careers. You can probably make a living doing, if you're good enough, you can make a living doing just that while you're doing it. But then as soon as that day ends and if it ends with an injury, it's a little abrupt and you know, you can't predict that. And you have to have another option in place, ready to go that can pay the bills essentially. So it's not like the NFL, the NBA or anything <laughs> no, like that. There's where, no retiring. Right. Yeah. You play, play three or three to five years and you could live modestly the rest of your life off your pension. It's like, that's not the case. I'm guessing with the Highland games. No, as a professional Highland games guy and being one of the best in the world, the whole time I did it and competing probably the most often of any athletes, um, at 20 times a season or whatever it was for that whole stretch. Like my best years, I'm making somewhere between 25 and 30 grand mm -hmm. and <clears throat> there's expenses, mm -hmm. but I've got a good job at the time doing outside sales that pays well. And so I, I guess I had enough, you know, forethought to think making a little bit of money with this Highland games thing is sure sweet. Mm -hmm. I should probably figure out a way, whether it's selling these books or programming for the Highland games that help some money keep coming in whenever I'm done throwing just to ease that transition back yeah. into whatever my normal salary is. And it just kept growing. And now that's what I do for a living and don't bother with the other side of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. I think, uh, you know, there's always interesting people or people interested in these niche sports, as long as you're able to kind of put stuff out there. And it sounds like you maybe were one of the first people to really start leaning into more of the, the modern side of things where you have virtual like YouTube and that sort of stuff. I, I just always think about with ultra running, there was a guy, Anton Kropitka, who he uh, he won a bunch of races in like a first few years when I first got into the sport, but he would do this blog and he would just document like his training. And it was just like such a detailed and just had a way of kind of describing it that it just attracted people to it where they want to like almost live vicariously through him. I can just imagine like these like 30 to 40 year old guys like sitting in their office job, just like imagining that they were out there in the mountains running around like he was. So they'd read his blog and he got really popular from that. And that kind of fed into the other channels and things like that. And it's like, it, it's just, I think being authentic and true to yourself and telling that story can go a long ways. But when you yourself looks at it, you're like, well, this is just basic stuff I'm doing. Why would people care? It's kind of hard. I think sometimes to, to appreciate for someone who has no clue 
how much of a resource that can be. I, I still wonder, look, man, I don't know why I'm getting to do a motorcycle trip with Indian. I threw rocks in a field that people agreed <laughs> to measure. Like one doesn't equal the other, you know, but it's all the same path. You know, the, the world championships for me are, they're a nice foot in the door to talk to people. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have anything to say other than that, once you're in the room, that's a nice one meeting. And so you may as well have some other stuff you're interested in other things. And for me, I've, I've just got a wide variety of interest. I like camping. I like doing outdoor stuff. I like travel. I like art. I like doing tons and tons of different things. Yeah. You're a curious mind. Big time. So the podcast is great for that. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. You can explore a lot. Yeah. Did So with, uh, I, I understand like shot put discus hammer throwing stuff from my years in track and field. And, you know, those guys and gals were, you know, pretty big humans. And sometimes it was like, they were fairly big naturally and then they had to get even bigger yet to compete at a world stage was it just like a did you have to do a lot of that like weight gain to be competitive at highland games or were you kind of positioned nicely from like all the stuff that went into being a division one collegiate athlete yeah i graduated high school weighing about 265 270 and so from there uh went to college and lifted a bunch got really strong really didn't change body weight too much through college um, and then I think I recompositioned a little bit and got stronger. Um, but as a thrower, right, like you're not doing any hypertrophy work is training. So you're not bodybuilding. Everything I'm doing is sets of three to five at 70 to 75% really explosive, mm-hmm. full body stuff. And so you, you do need some body weight to do those sports for sure, especially Highland Games. You know, if you're spinning around twice with a 56 pound weight at the end of your arm, and I'm trying, you know, for me, that, that event, like I've, I think my best throw is 48 feet with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to have some sand in your pockets there to create <laughs> some leverage. And, and so at my biggest in the Highland Games, I got up to about 290 is probably. And so my best fighting competing weight was about 280. And so start the season, I'd usually be about 275. And at the end of the season, I'd be about 290. Mm-hmm. between traveling and drinking and yeah. hanging out and food. And I would imagine Highland Games post-competition, there was a fair bit of beer drinking. What do you mean post? <laughs> <laughs> drank plenty during most of my competitions. That's, that's uh, like your Gatorade, right? Oh, man, I, I drank beer at World Championships always. Yeah, usually before the caber. Caber's usually like right after lunch, and having a beer going into the caber was always smart. It just, just kind of knocked the nerves of, back yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's not entirely void in ultra running. You'll hear stories of people like having a rough race, take a shot of whiskey, and all of a sudden, boom, they're back in it. It's kind of like a little bonk breaker, I guess. I'm I'm not necessarily saying that's the ticket, but (laughs) but it's there's stories out there, anecdotal, albeit. But um, yeah, it's uh, I would imagine with the you said there's like 20 competitions a year when you're in the swing of it yeah so i think the biggest year i did was like 23 mm-hmm. um but yeah 20 20 to 23 competitions a year mm-hmm. and that season is like may 1st to october okay yeah so it's pretty, really tight you're <laughs> yeah, big, you do five weekends in a row okay so you're just going from one to the next when you're doing that is it because i'm thinking like you must do like an off-season build up so that you have like that that structure there or that, that, that foundation there so that you can kind of scale back on the amount of training. Cause I would imagine competing at that level, that frequency, you're kind of just doing a competition recovering, doing another one. And that is essentially your training at that point. Yeah. So in the heat of it, um, my off season every year. So my, my, I said my season would end K 
Celtic Classic is in Pennsylvania the last weekend of September. And so I would basically take October and do whatever I felt like. If I wanted to go to the gym, cool. There's no programming. If I want to do cardio, if I want to go walk in the woods, whatever. Do whatever you want for a month. November 1st was typically the start of my off season. And that was really no throwing. And it was 10 weeks of German volume training. So I do 10 weeks of 10 by 10 on my bench squat, deadlift and overhead press. Um, that's an ugly 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, get a couple thousand squats under your belt in that 10 weeks or whatever it is, or a couple thousand lifts. And yeah, I'm not going terribly heavy during that, but I think I'm trying, my goal by the end of it was to work up to like 65% of my max for all 10 sets. And it's ugly volume, but I'm trying to build that big foundation and big engine to restart the year. Look at what imbalances I have from last season, what's banged up and just hit it with volume instead of the intense workouts. And as the season goes on the next, I would bounce back and forth between strength blocks and uh, like speed and power blocks. So strength stuff, I'd be more of a five, three, one periodization, four weeks on a deload. Uh, And so I'm probably throwing two times a week at that point in the season. Um, And then the speed and power would be the same type of lifts, you know, my big four lifts plus accessories. And then, I would stick around 80%, never go over 75% because I want things moving fast. My big metric during that is like, what's the heaviest weight that I can move at a meter a second? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a two second, 700 pound squat doesn't translate to me throwing a thing that weighs 56 pounds. Yeah. That hydraulic slow movement, it, you know, it's useless. I'd rather you move 315 really violently. Mm -hmm. And so switch to speed and power, start throwing more and then hit another strength block. And it would slowly transition to way more sports specific through the rest of the year. Um, and doing 20 plus competitions like that, you know, luckily with the track and field background, you know how that goes, uh, Mm -hmm. pick the four competitions you want to be good at. The other ones are practice. Yeah. If you throw a PR, but that ain't the plan. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, I, I mean, I would train through, yeah, the first, 15 games of the season. Like I'm not interested in throwing my best in May. I want to win world championships. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the way I would build it. I'd go to competitions, beat up from training and throw the best you can and move on the next week. I also had standing appointments with a massage therapist and two <laughs> chiropractors every week. Yeah, I would imagine so. <laughs> but they, that's that's similar to racing, I think with uh you you can probably peak for two or three races like realistically where you're like going to wring yourself dry and require like a legit off season after and then everything else is kind of tune-up races and i like to say you gotta kind of hold yourself accountable to not going past 80 percent on those training races or you're going to putting your a race in a b race and then you're going to exhaust yourself without the fitness you needed to actually meet your full potential so you got to be careful with that uh and is it hard to keep yourself kind of scaled back or does it not really matter can you just is, is the limiter just you're not there yet, so you're not going to go too hard on those B competitions? Um, yeah, the B competitions were, the way the way I really looked at that were opportunities to go sharpen, mm-hmm. right? That I need to get the reps of also competing. Like I need the reps of being in front of people. I need the reps of performing right now when it counts. And that's what those days were of like having those minutes when I am tired, I am beat up, I am sore. And it's like, it doesn't matter. We're still here. Mm-hmm. Do your job. And like having that focus and getting those reps for that many years, 
man, one of the things I, I know that I have right now is like, I perform when it counts. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter the situation. It doesn't matter if I'm tired or hungry or whatever it is. And that's translated to everything whether that's relationship stuff or travel or doing any of it, like it doesn't matter if I'm tired, tired is part of the gig. Mm -hmm. Like, so what perform anyway? Do you know where you got that mindset from? Um, I don't know. I really don't. Uh, there's a lot of people that, you know, inspired that. I know I remember one of the early podcasts I had done was with, uh, Dr. Andy Galpin. Oh yeah. And a great, great guy. And he was talking about that. He's like, look, optimized days are great. Like I love my morning routine and doing all this, but also I need to know that I can go lecture for two hours if I haven't eaten for 12 Mm -hmm. and I didn't sleep last night. Like, so what perform don't be fragile. And like that to me was always really important, especially with, with the way those competitions work. Like, yo, you got to go do your job. That's, that's the gig. You've already paid for these plane tickets. Like you're, you're going. And so you also knew who was going to be there. And at that point in the Highland Games, it was really myself and another guy pretty far ahead of the rest of the crowd. So, like, I knew I could come in at 80% and still place top two. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at everything of, like, is this a game to go to? And it was like, what's the prize money for the top two places? Perfect. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> uh, you know, if not, I, I messed up. And so I think I pulled out of one competition in the time that I competed with an injury. I'd did something to a calf, missed one game. Um, and then maybe two due to the meniscus in 2016. But yeah, you could, you could do it. And it's not so brutal on the body that like powerlifting is. And that's why you can do it that many times of the year. And so you're just not prepared to throw far, no matter how hard you try, if it makes sense. But like, you can't force that PR mm-hmm. early in the season. You're just stacking the cards in your favor for later in the season. And yeah, keeping it under wraps, like not really, not really. Like if you throw a PR awesome, because like, again, nothing's terribly heavy compared to what I'm doing in the weight room. So I'm not getting fried in my CNS the way that I was doing a powerlifting meet or doing strongman. Mm -hmm. And so it gave a lot of time for feedback to get back. And like, I would compete Saturday, fly Sunday. I'm absolutely back in the gym lifting Monday and throwing. And so it just, you don't deload after a competition. You just, that's instead of me throwing Saturday at home, I'm now throwing Saturday in Portland. Which is perfect for you because you want to travel anyway. (laughs) Great. This is great for me. Yeah. It's interesting because I feel like part of the challenge with that sort of a lifestyle is putting yourself or just trusting that mindset and knowing that it's not just you that's dealing with these things like the other competitors are too. And for every excuse you could give yourself, they could give themselves one and you kind of have to go in knowing that and staying true to like what you think you're capable of versus dwelling on, Oh, well that person maybe had a smoother flight in, or that person didn't have to travel two weekends ago. And when you start going down that mental, it becomes this kind of like, who can I blame other than myself type of mindset, which seems to be the opposite of what you tend to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm very much, it's all on me mm-hmm. all the time. And, and not to mention, look, my, my main competitor in, in nemesis, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, Dan McKim, he won six world championships. I don't know how much nemesis is considered in his arena. Like, Who's that guy I competed against? Uh, but Dan was so good and just a monster of a human. Plus he's got five kids at home. Mm-hmm. So like, we, we would travel and my joke is, is like, 
Well, he got to the hotel last night and actually got a full night of sleep. He's so gassed up to compete the next day. (laughs) You know, he's dealing with five kids at home. Like, I don't have an excuse. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at it for me to be able to shut that voice up. I needed to know and be honest with myself of did I control everything I could control? Mm -hmm. Did I do all my training? Did I show up? Because there's so many factors I can't control, like what their life is or what you know, Dan's six foot five and 315 pounds. I we're playing with different machines mm-hmm. and those are a lot of things I can't control. I can't change the weather that weekend where that's just how it is. And so why give it any energy? Um, you know, focus on me and be honest about we're going to go out and do our best and the cards fall where they do. And then let's reanalyze the data and move back. Cause I'm not really competing against him, right? We're not boxing. It's not tennis. It's not this one. I'm not reacting to anything he did. My goal is to go out and throw this weekend the furthest I can with the implements given. And that, that really helped kind of keep all that in focus. Not to mention that I realized Dan has some other hurdles that I don't have. And so man, getting beat by genetics or any other stuff or just superior athletes, that happens. I, I can't, I can't will myself through hard work to become a better basketball player than LeBron, LeBron James. He just has it. So pretending there's coaching or nutrition or hard work that accomplishes whatever you want just isn't true. You can get better at things. And if progress is the goal, right on. Mm-hmm. And that stays in control. But if you have the expectation of, I'm going to play in the NBA because I'm working hard, like, eh, sorry. That ain't how it goes. And so why would it be different for Highland Games or running or powerlifting or bodybuilding or anything? That There are freaks. And when they show up, you know, just be in awe. Just be in awe that that person exists mm-hmm. and how amazing it is what they can do. And like getting to watch those guys compete for as long as I did, it was really important for me to be honest with myself of like, did we do all the things we could? Yes. I'll, I'll be damned I'm outworked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the work ethic thing translates to a lot of different things. And I think that's probably why you've been successful in a variety of different things is you can kind of translate that over into whatever it is you decide is going to be of interest to you. And if it's interesting to you, applying that hard work is going to probably just amplify what you could, what you could actually force yourself to do if you didn't want to in certain cases. No one else is ever going to care or going to build my dreams for me. It's not their thing. They're going to work on theirs. And so if I'm going to build my dreams, I need to get busy. And if I want to do all that, I need to do all that in the amount of time I have left to live, mm-hmm. which I'm very aware of. Like um, that, that's a big driving force for me is I have quite a bit of anxiety constantly about the fact that you know, I'm dying mm-hmm. and that time's going to be up at some point. And so all the things that I'm interested in doing in my life have to happen between now and then, which is unknown X. And so I, I just try to live every day that way that I'm trying to push forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think like one one transition in my life that kind of made that a little more clear to me was when I stepped away from working for someone else <laughs> and started working for myself where the value of working for someone else while I had this other passion that wasn't directly benefited from it. So like when I was teaching, for example, like going in and teaching a classroom from a physical standpoint didn't necessarily translate into me getting faster. But what it did do was it forced me to decide, hey, if I want to be good at this, 4 a.m. is when that alarm clock's going to go off. And 
if I don't get up and get out of bed and do that run then, it's just not going to happen today because there isn't another two-hour block of time that I'm going to be able to have. Uh, and knowing that kind of puts you into that mindset of like, you don't even have enough time to blame someone or think of like what could have been better. You just got to do it. Right. And you do that long enough, you kind of build that, that resilience to that. Then when I started kind of being completely employed by myself, I had to sort of just put that structure in there because there are, there were points where I recognized like, oh, you know what? I could move this workout to the afternoon if I feel like it. But then I'm not going to feel like doing it anymore in the afternoon. Than <laughs> no, I, I never have. <laughs> so at a certain point, I just started structuring my calendar where it's like, hey, if you don't have this workout done, I give myself a little more leeway than 4 a.m. now. But <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like to think that's a sustainability move more than anything. And uh, But then I, you know, I give myself that block of time. Like, this is your window to train. You use that window to train if you want to get better at this. If you don't, then maybe you need to reassess whether you actually want to be doing what you're doing. But when that... When the, when the clock hits 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. or whatever it happens to be, that's when you transition over to coaching plans. That's when you transition over to podcasting. That's when you transition over to whatever else you're doing with your day. And keeping yourself kind of honest with that, I think, puts you in that position to kind of skew things the way you do or just like, this is on me. It's my responsibility. I have to do it. No one's going to come and hold my hand. No one's going to come and do it for me. No one's going to you know, say, hey, you had a rough night last night. Uh, we're going to no give, cares. We're, we're going to, yeah, we're going to just edit this podcast for you. <laughs> right. And you know, with, with that and like what you're saying that like, that's the time I have to get this done. And so like during the years that I'm doing outside sales and traveling, I chose to drove drive to, to most of my meetings, whether it was 10 or 12 hours away or whatever, I'd make a week of it and go hit there and then catch a couple local gyms and meet people. And, mm-hmm. and I would throw, like I threw in, I would drive because I could bring my implements in the back of my truck. Oh yeah. And so in the back of a holiday and express parking lot, if there's a field I'm throwing, <laughs> that's it. Like it's not up for debate and it's either this is important to me. So we're doing it or it isn't important. And let's go find something that is, but let's not pretend and live somewhere in the middle ground. Mm-hmm. And I, I just hate that middle ground of a decision of like, Oh, I'd like to lose weight, but then I keep ordering cookies, <laughs> right? Like, is this important to you? Because mm-hmm. if it is, stop. But if it's not important to you, say it out loud that you don't give a shit and let's move on and pick something that is. Stop burning this half energy with two feet on both sides of the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting mindset. And I think it's, uh, it's interesting that, uh, <laughs> that I'm sorry. I was just thinking of you in the back of the holiday. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're exactly right. Did I get, get a lot of questions. Of any fields when you're doing? That? I never got kicked out, but always somebody would come up and ask, "What are you doing?" And then uh, you just have to explain the thing because no one's ever heard of the Highland Games. Mm-hmm. This was a wonderful piece of ego for me doing that sport. Is if I was a world champion at darts, people are more impressed because mm-hmm. people have played darts. There's not a reference to Highland Games, right? And so, you know, for me, it was even getting those chances to be on the road and travel and do work, like I'd get a chance to go see the other guys I compete with and train with them. And so I got to have those relationships with these other people that got it. You know, I didn't need to explain to them why I'm in a field throwing stones by myself. We both get it. It's important to you too. And so being around people that get it meant a lot that really shifted a lot for me. And so 
when I'm focused on a thing or whatever my new goal is or whatever it is, I don't care if anyone else gets it. I don't need you to. Only I need to. I don't need support. I'll do it because it matters to me. It matters to me in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did So when you just decided to start Hate Brand, was that something that was just like personally inspired by you where you're like, I want to do this? Or was that part of something else that kind of just flourished on its own? Not, I shouldn't say on its own, but that kind of took off on itself once you decided to do it? In, in the first book I wrote, uh, Throwing Lab, uh, which kind of just talks about how to build your season, you know, accordingly for the Highland Games or, or what I was doing. Um, I wrote about the hate in it, uh, just kind of the mindset that I, I had talked about. And then I started having enough people asking like, oh, you should do a shirt. You should do a shirt. Yeah. And so, um, you know, trying to, trying to figure that out and like, oh man, I have a job. Like I travel around the country. Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to ship shirts once a week. Like that's unacceptable. I'm going to go ship three shirts this week. <laughs> like I don't, I don't have time to do that. Mm-hmm. And luckily for me at that time, um, <clears throat> my friend, uh, Phil Stevens, who I'm in business with to the day, uh, he hit me up and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm, I, I'm taking care of some fulfillment in printing and book sales for one of our friends. Yeah, I could do that for you. And I'm like, well, how's that work? I just send you like a design and then I promote it and then you handle all the other things. So whether I sell a one thing this week or a thousand, you know, a thousand items this week, my job doesn't change. He's like, yeah. I'm like, cool. Fully scalable from jump. Mm-hmm. So I just went in with that. I mean, if it wasn't for Phil, Phil's probably provided me the biggest opportunity to change my life of anyone I've ever met. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens and Element. Athletic Greens comes packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. And Element is my go-to electrolyte source. You can head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for discounts and links to all the show sponsors. Well, and part of it is like, those opportunities obviously are nice, but you also have to recognize them and know that and take the leap of faith, so to speak, to be able to actually take advantage of it too. Cause I think like, you know, at some, at one point you were a one man show. Oh yeah. And I mean, look, hate brand didn't start professional. Like we were probably two years in before we got our business stuff lined out. I mean, you know, start selling stuff first. Yeah. Uncle Sam ain't coming to get you. <laughs> also the trademark people ain't showing up. You know what I mean? Like, I think people panic so much about the litigious side of stuff with our society that it creates inaction. Mm. And so start doing whatever it is. Start doing. By the way, you're going to suck at it. That's how new things are. Mm -hmm. So start doing the reps, just like lifting, just like anything else, and get better. Um, Learn by doing. Yeah, so I mean, we we opened up with a pre-sale of a shirt for a week and sold 50 shirts or so. And so with profit margin on shirts being what they are, I now have enough money to send those shirts out and print 50 more shirts. Mm -hmm. And that's how we started. And then we came up with a new design. And then I realized that that's the part of the job I really like is creating and designing and coming up with concepts for shirts and working with my graphic design team and drawing and sketching and being part of that and learning that as well. Um, And so we've put out, three new drops a month for the last five years and we rarely rerun stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's fun. I love creating new stuff. I love doing the, the photo shoots for it, which ah, 
that's come and gone. I've had I've had windows where I enjoy doing photo shoots, and I've had windows where I'm like, this is the worst thing <laughs> ever. I've done six of these a month for five years. I yeah. could I can't stare into the middle distance and down anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I should mention so the listeners know like hate brand I think they're probably thinking hate spelt out and I think this is one of the coolest parts about the brand logo I appreciate that <laughs> it's just an H in the Roman numeral eight, eight yeah. so it works when I first saw it it's it's like it's perfect because it catches you for a couple seconds like what is that and then you see it and it's like oh okay and then you don't unsee it you know right away um, I could still probably do better educational information on how to say it I, have <laughs> I figured tons it out. of people tons of people man that um I've bought stuff from us from a long time and they're like, you know, heavy HV three. Like, Oh yeah. Um, like it's hate. And they're <laughs> like, Oh, and yeah, I, I, I'm glad it is what it is. Uh, I think, I think a couple of things. I think it being written out as hate, like H A T E probably would have caused me a few problems in the last three years. Yeah. Like it just would have been too much to try to explain to people. I mean, even, our tagline for the brand is uh, spread hate, always party. <laughs> and so even saying that and people don't have the reference or like spread hate. Yeah. This is not what we're going for. Um, and so well, people aren't too into context these days. No context and nuance aren't <laughs> one of the things America's exporting currently. <laughs> it's, it's more like how can I leverage this to grab some attention for myself oh, man, at their the, expense? The virtue signal <laughs> is so rough for me because and, and again, yeah, this is our fault. This is our fault from all the years of social media or anything else. We have conditioned people to understand that if you say something shitty, it gets more attention than being positive back to the person. Mm-hmm. And so since those catch more attention, why wouldn't the people that make big money on attention, like our news sources right. or any of these other things, use that tactic? Mm-hmm. You know, years ago, even with Howard Stern's show, I remember reading something that was like, People that love Howard's show listen for about 30 minutes a day. And people that hate Howard's show listen for 48. <laughs> right? And so yeah. like, if that's the human psychology of it, of course social media gets weird. Of course all these things get weird. And especially now that we've catered to troll culture, that if one person is yelling in a minority about a thing that we have to agree isn't right, out of context, we placate to them. And we've given in to the trolls. And so our media has switched gears as well to be like, sweet, we'll just keep them angry at us and they keep watching. Mm -hmm. And if they keep watching, we sell more ads. And that's what pays the bills. So real quick for people, if the thing you're watching for information has ads, it's called entertainment. (laughs) Right. It's biased. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think, yeah, and it's just gotten too easy too now because everyone has a channel, so to speak. And it can, it gets pretty crazy out there. But uh, yeah, I th- you know, one thing that I find interesting, well, I have a question. Actually, it's a two-part question. And the first part is, when are you going to do an ultra marathon? And the second one is, are you going <laughs> to let me coach you for it? <laughs> so I did my first run thing last year. Uh, decided in January to start training for um, Bryce Canyon Ultra, which I ended up doing the uh, what, 30K, I think, whatever, the 20-mile. Okay. Sure, yeah. Uh, I signed up for an 18-mile that ended at 20. I wasn't impressed uh-huh. at 18-mile and not being back at the finish, by the way. <laughs> so what I learned from that is that's the distance I'm interested in covering. Uh-huh. I, don't, I didn't finish that, and I was like, all right, now how do we do a 60? 
Nope. <laughs> that voice never showed up. I loved the day. Uh-huh. And my intention for that training as not a runner with a fake knee who's 240 pounds was I think in the next 16 weeks I can be in good enough shape to enjoy my day in Bryce Canyon and, and not be this slog mm-hmm. and just death march the whole time. And it's, that's not why I'm going. That's not to be miserable for half a day. Yeah. No interest. I'd rather take two grams of mushrooms and enjoy the whole day. Yeah. <laughs> enjoy the beautifulness of Bryce Canyon and, and have a great time talking with people on the trail and run as much as I want to. You know, I know my machine enough to be able to say my goal is I'll finish in whatever amount of time it takes, but I'm going to finish empty. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want. Mm-hmm. And I got that. And it was great. And I think I'd probably do another, uh, something about that distance I enjoyed. So I've got, I'm training right now for a 27 mile trail run or trail hike, I'll sure. call it, uh, in Missouri with a group of people that are going to come that way to do the Berryman trail with me. It's a 27 mile loop. And, uh, most people haven't walked for 12 straight hours. And if they'd like to join me, they can. Yeah, well, you'll officially be an ultra marathon. I did. I did it last year. Is ultra? Does that make ultra marathon? Technically, anything over twenty six point two would be an ultra marathon. (laughs) Yes, I've done it. Now I just need to get paid like a dollar for it, and I can be a professional ultra marathoner. (laughs) It is interesting. I think uh, just the the way that sport has kind of attracted groups of people who maybe you wouldn't have otherwise expected to come into it. So there's such a variety of different kind of subcultures within the a subculture i guess you'd say and like the hunting community has kind of come out to a little bit that makes some sense in the sense sure big big stalking yeah exactly if you really want to get out there in the back country you got to know how to move through that stuff you got to know how to suffer you know got to know how to change direction when things don't go right and not dwell on that and keep keep kind of trucking along so that makes a ton of sense and then uh you know you get i think it's you know it's probably a lot of like joe rogan influence too you know he's given ultra marathon running enough attention mm-hmm. that you get just people who would have otherwise never heard of the sport deciding, Hey, I want to challenge myself. This seems like a great way. You get guys like David Goggins and Cam Haynes getting on board. And then it's like, okay, now there's actually a big signal boost for this type of thing. And, and we have some stars, right? Like those mm-hmm. guys or yourself, like we have some names within that sport that I shouldn't know any ultra marathoners names. Do you know <laughs> right, what I mean? Like right. my, my world is a way different, mm-hmm. way different place. Yeah. But it is interesting because I think like I've gotten, I'm really interested in like the powerlifting community and the bodybuilding community and some of these like kind of like opposite end of the spectrum type sports for mine, because there is a lot of crossover in just the way the mindset works with it and just the, the attention to detail, the routine and just the, the, the way you kind of go about it. And I think that's part of the draw too. It's like you get, you get some you get someone who's done a sport long enough and they're curious like yourself, they want to see what they can do in something else, even if it is something they shouldn't be good at. And I think, I mean, you know, Mark Bell, I think you've been on the show Mm -hmm. a few times and you know, Mark's just like that too. He's like, as soon as he figures out what he should really, really suck at, that's the thing he really wants to do. Yeah. He keeps it in a tight window of still meatheady things. Right. Right. Mark, Mark loves that wheelhouse, you know, whether it's bodybuilding, changing for powerlifting. Yeah. He did a 50 miler though. Did he? About that? That's relatively recently. Yeah, he's gotten into running in the last couple months. I thought months. he did like a 50-mile day. Like, he I did. don't think he, yeah. it was an event, right? Like no, he, no, he did it himself. It was, uh, I think he, I, I just, I remember I got a message from him early or last year, and he was like, I think I'm going to try to do 
I, I, you know what? You know what it was. He was on this kick where he was trying to get twenty thousand steps a day. Right, and that was I remember like, that. That was, I think, the catalyst to it. And once he started doing that for a while, he thought it was maybe someone. Someone mentioned to him like, you know, like how many could you do or something like that. And he decided, I bet I can do a hundred thousand, and that's you know roughly fifty miles. So he decided he was going to do fifty miles, and I think he was going to try to do it in around twelve hours or something like that. Around that's the, pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. He. uh he got it done. It was just fun to hear his like him talk about it because, you know, I know what it's like to do an event like that and then the repercussions the days afterwards. So to hear Mark talk about it, he's like, Yeah, it was really weird. I thought I would like lose weight doing fifty miles. I gained like eight to ten pounds of water weight because my legs swell swelled so up. So inflamed. It's like yeah. I could barely get in and out of my car. So I just got into the in the recliner and just like zzzz. <laughs> oh, when I, when I did, when I did the Berryman trail last year, I, I did it by myself. So I packed, it was really kind of a pre, I did it before the Bryce Canyon thing. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I'll just go do this long hike. Um, cause at that point in the training, you know, I, I kind of looked at the training as my cap time for the, for the Bryce Canyon thing is seven hours. Uh-huh. I need to move at 2.67 miles an hour yeah. for seven hours to finish. <laughs> That's the bare minimum here. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to do a seven hour training run. Right. Because I know that if I can finish about a four hour run in the window, like I'm probably good. Mm-hmm. You know, if that feels like an RPE seven. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm good to go. I can, I can finish the day. Um, and so I went out and did the hike and my, my plan was to do an overnight. I was going to do a solo overnight and knock it out in two days. And, um, I got to like an 18 mile point in the trail and it was like 4 PM. What am I going to do? Just sit here? <laughs> I'll sit here the rest of the day. You know, I've got less than 10 miles left. I can be back at my car for dark mm-hmm. and then go home and I'll sleep in my bed. And truth is with my hips pretty rough and the knee takes a beating on a day like that for yeah. sure. And so my real concern by the point I got to 18 miles was if I rest and take the night, can I get shoes back on tomorrow? Oh, yeah. <laughs> As in like, can I physically reach my foot? Yeah. And if I can't, that's going to make an interesting nine miles. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, we're already beat up and moving. Let's just keep, keep, <laughs> keep walking. Worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. And then I had like a 90 minute drive home. Uh, and like, by the time I got home, I'm, I'm in great spirits, but the, the body's slaughtered. Mm-hmm. And so like, I am just like the tiniest steps <laughs> through the house and like wave at my, I'm like, I'm good. Just waddling around. Just waddling around. And yeah, I was beat up for a couple of days. Uh-huh. It, it was a really, really interesting new feeling. Um, I don't have any reference to that as an athlete. Like I've never had to do something that long. Everything I've ever done is how much power can I generate in under two seconds? Mm-hmm. And so keeping my head together for 12 hours of why are we still doing this? Yeah. And then not listening to that's okay. We're doing it. Did you, when you, when you did that, was your mindset just kind of similar to what you normally do where when you'd get that self-doubt that would creep in the why am I doing this thing you just kind of like immediately move past it you know now I'm I wait for that that voice Mm -hmm. because it's coming yeah because it means I'm doing a hard thing and so I, I now just like ah there you are yeah that's how long it took today uh-huh. and like I treat that almost as like a training mark of like so how long did it take for that thing to show up he doesn't get a vote, but how long did it take for him to get here? Mm-hmm. And you know, that, that changes. And also the ability of how much I care what that voice says changes. You know, are we hurting? Or are we hurt? You know, is this, are, are we still within threshold of not being stupid and trying to cause long-term damage? 
because I'm not interested in that. Right. You know, the ego won't get in the way for it. But I, I love a simple day that's like, so today we just walk? Man, that's easy. That's a really simple day. Mm-hmm. Instead of <sighs> getting up in the morning, try to go train, and then I've got a podcast, and then I have a meeting, and then I'm back to another podcast. I have so many different problem-solving skills on a regular day. Walking for 12 hours is really simple. Yeah, one goal. It's great. Yeah. It's the same reason I like long road trips. You uh-huh. just want me to drive today? This is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. That makes sense. I think and my wife's like that too. Cause I mean, she's got, she's a, she's a lawyer and she does like healthcare compliance and it's a lot of problem solving, a lot of what is going to happen today that I wasn't expecting, but I have to be professional and be prepared to like remedy and, you know, that bleeds into week long stuff sometimes. So she gets out there in a race, you know, it's like, that's her opportunity to say, okay, I can like not think about that stuff for a full day and just worry about getting through these canyons and over this trail and all that other stuff. And it's, it makes, it makes total sense. It's just like, you're, you're beating up your body, but you're resting your mind kind of to some degree, even though it is a mental hurdle to get over at times too. Huge, huge. I tell you what, I will very interested in 2023 do a, do a bigger run. Okay. Yeah. This year is a bit booked. Yeah. No, uh, with, yeah. You got I've too got, much motorcycle riding. I've got four motorcycle <laughs> trips and then I've got Patagonia, Alaska, and Bali also oh, worked wow. in. So, you know, um, it's rough to complain about travel, mm-hmm. especially travel that's paid for. But yeah, it's still travel. It's still stress. I'm still not at home. I'm still right. operating in another place doing these type of things. I'm Time still zone shifts, all the- on yeah. working. Uh, it's, it's not vacation, Mm -hmm. you know, and having, looking at travel that isn't vacation changes your mind too. Most people travel for relaxation and assume that if you leave home to go do a thing, that that's how it works. Whereas if I'm here in town, like Austin, I don't stop moving. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of 12 and 13 hour days worth of seeing people and connecting and working and podcast or calls or whatever. And I love it. I love that sprint too. Mm -hmm. Cause it, it benefits me. It's not benefiting some company or any of that. Like, yeah, that's my dreams I'm chasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think with some of that too, it's always like starting it. That's the hard part. Cause you all, you think about like, before you leave, you think about, oh, I got to get on this plane. I got to drive this car. I got to do this. got to do that. I got to get this in order. I got to book these hotels. I got, you know, everything that goes into traveling. But then once you do it and you hang out with those people, you meet somebody new, you reconnect with old friends and things like that. When you get done with it, you just, you laugh at yourself. You're like, why did I ever think that, that there was any scenario in which I wouldn't want to do that? I know. So I, know. I think you got to do it frequently enough to re- keep reminding yourself how much fun and exciting it actually, and rewarding it actually is. Or you get like, if you get too far removed from it, then that, that voice in your head of like, you know, it'd be a little easier just to stay at home with my structure, with my three monitor computer. And- of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. My beanbag, my own gym. Right. And- yeah. 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 What you're saying there is so true. And man, I notice it that, and and I don't know how much you traveled throughout the year, like competing, Mm -hmm. but I've, I've taken 40 flights a year for almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And so I think during early COVID was probably the longest I was ever home in the last 15 years. And so like I was home for like six months Mm -hmm. and didn't go anywhere felt really out of practice yeah the next time i was like what goes in my backpack where are my things where is that travel bag that i'm used to that i know has four chargers in it and like like, yeah you know i i i don't i build my life to be pretty efficient so that i know 
my backpack has a computer charger in it, a cell phone charger in it, you know, an extra battery pack has double A batteries for who knows what, mm-hmm. possibly a second set of headphones, a wired set of headphones, and they don't ever leave that backpack. Mm-hmm. And so that way I can just grab it and leave. And leave, yeah. And otherwise, you know, that, that downtime in between things crushes me of like trying to reorganize and shift stuff over. And so through the years of doing it, I've just built those more efficient systems. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're traveling weekly like that, you got to have just a, a bag that stays a bag. Otherwise, yeah, you, I mean, when you think about it, it's like if you would actually unpack that and repack it every time, you're looking at at least an hour of prep probably before every trip. So you're losing the equivalent of two to three days over the course of a year, just packing that bag over and right. over again. Right. <laughs> and people wonder why they, they don't have any time. It's like, yeah. You oh, get I mean, efficient. It's so funny to hear that when people talk about like, oh, I don't have time. I'm like, I disagree. <laughs> we like, if find you some. do a time audit on yourself. Yeah. Well, that's another career for you. I think you just go in and audit people's schedules. Audit people's <laughs> schedules. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's like you waste four hours a day. That's it. Have you seen how much time you waste? You could do two things right now. Why are you even... It's like that show where they send someone in to, to reorganize your house. They're like, here's the compartments. This is where this goes. You keep it there. Then you don't have to search for it for 30 minutes every time you lose it. <laughs> you know, and for a long time being, being busy like this, um, man, I wanted to like complain about it because the people I'm around don't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of people's natural go-to. Like most people, when they get together, kind of bitch and moan about Seek comfort, things. yeah. Yeah. And... The more I started getting around people who don't complain and they just talk about the ideas and things they're pushing for and the direction they're trying to go, like there's not any focus on the loading up for travel. Mm -hmm. Like also, what are we talking about? Tired. Of course we're tired. I'm building something. Like I care. I'm on it. I can't stop thinking about it. I'm completely obsessed with all of it, which is one of the reasons I chose running Mm -hmm. (laughs) to do my first not strength thing, I guess, was I'll never be good at it. I'm a 38-year-old guy with a fake knee with no running background and a bad hip, and I weigh 230 pounds. (laughs) And by good, I mean world champion. That's my definition of good of the last thing I did. Uh And because I know that I don't have that ability to get really into the sport, the obsession switch won't ever flip. Mm -hmm. I'm not naturally going to be like, oh, I have a gift here. We do not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just different, I guess, right? Because like, if you know that you're capable of being a world champion at something, then the pressure's kind of on in the sense that if you don't become the world champion, then you know, did you meet your potential? Whereas, like, I think you want those something like that in your life at all times to a degree where you're always striving to get better, you're always striving to be the best, so to speak. But uh, if you have that with everything, it would probably beat you down a little too much. Also, what a silly thing, right? Like, I got lucky enough to be the best in the world at a thing. Mm-hmm. I probably won't find another. Most people don't have one. One, right, yeah. <laughs> I won't find two. And and rad, what an incredible chapter of my life that got to be, that set this one up. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to spend the next five chapters of my life talking about that one. I want to do other things. That's a thing I did that was incredible. I would also love that to be one of the least interesting things about me in another 10 years is that I did the Highland Games. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's a great perspective because it's like, if you go into that thinking, okay, I won the Highland Games twice, got second a couple times after that. If your expectation then is that 
you know, everything you do in life is going to be world championship caliber. It, you're just going to be the most miserable old man someday because you're going to be thinking about like, whoa, well, you know, these kids are beating my records now or, you know, or I can't do this anymore. And that's just a miserable place to be in. And I remember when I when I first started getting good at ultra running and eventually, you know, broke the 100 mile and 12 hour world record. Fortunately for me, I think I came to the conclusion before that that if I ever did that, it was just going to be a matter of time before someone breaks it. it could be the next day. It could be a year. It could be two years. It could be 10 years, but it's going to happen. And if my mindset between then and that happening is going to be, you know, hold on to this, protect this. It's, you know, how do I you know define myself as quote unquote the best at whatever it happens to be, then I'm going to be living in a miserable life of like kind of reactive thinking and negative thinking versus positive thinking. So it's like, you structure is like how you said it. It's like you were a Highland Games champion twice. You were the best at that. For, yeah, that's not gone now that right. I can't still do it. Right. You know, mm-hmm. also, also, like that's such a scarcity mindset to have about like I got this world championship. It's mine now. Yeah. <laughs> or this this world record. It's mine now. Like, why not celebrate the fact that you were lucky enough to breathe thin air with these other guys that progress the sport, mm-hmm. these other women that push themselves to do new things and show other people in the sport anything's possible. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the feeling of abundance that you should have by getting a chance to to hit that mark for people and not hold it so tight. And I've just seen so many people in powerlifting or strongman or anything that it becomes their whole identity. And then when the sport leaves them as they will, uh, they fight and stay in and they're constantly at events and you kind of have this weird feeling, you know, the same reason that, after I finished throwing in college, I'm not going back up there to train. Mm-hmm. I can't be that guy, that old guy that keeps lurking around <laughs> and like yeah. pretending I'm going to the Olympics and I'm not, you're not going there, dude, find something else. And I just I can't be that dude. You know, I had a couple years after I got hurt that I traveled and still did Highland game stuff and like announced at games and did MC work and, also, that was a skill I wanted to sharpen, mm-hmm. and it gave me an opportunity to do it. Yeah. Because I need public speaking reps if I want to podcast and get better at it. If I want to host events, if I want to do anything, I need reps. And I got to be able to talk in person. And I got to be able to hold a crowd and figure out how to manage attention and how to do all of it. Um, I got a couple years of it, and kind of once my generation of guys started kind of retiring as well, I don't want to go. Like I wanted mm. to go hang out with my buddies. Yeah. yeah. You know, it was an excuse <laughs> to go still be around them. And, and my brother, my brother competed as a pro in the Highland games with me. So we got to travel around the country and world together for like five or six years. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Super, super great experience. Yeah. Yeah. No, I imagine, I imagine uh, having a family member with you is quite a bit of fun to really unique. Mm-hmm. And it was hard when it ended. It was really, cause at, at that point he and I also worked for the same company. Sure. And so that transition of our relationship from seeing each other and talking daily due to the job and then seeing each other Friday through Sunday on the road competing together, you know, I quit competing and I, that stopped. A lot of the phone calls stopped because we're not doing the same things. It's, it's not rude. It's not he doesn't care anymore or any of that. Like people are busy, dude. Yeah. And so I knew that. That that's how it goes. Like I knew the sport will happily forget me and move on. <laughs> Perfect. Did your brother keep competing after you were done for yeah, a, while? a couple more years? 
Yeah, he got a couple more years in it, and then I think he retired right at right around forty. Okay, is that typical age for Highland game athletes around forty? Or man, you, people do it forever. Yeah, because <laughs> some of those strength sports, it seems like you kind of almost need that amount of time just to get to develop. It seems like the window of thirty to forty is really your sweet spot for for strength. That seems to be where max strength gets built as far as age-wise in humans you know after 40 things start to kind of deteriorate like if you're hitting big max lift prs in your 40s you weren't pushing very hard in your late 20s and early 30s okay uh you're just never going to beat that window as far as hormonally you're less damage on the body it's it's it just recovers better your sleep's better you can just can just be meaner to the machine and it responds (laughs) like the same reason of like i look at what i was doing at 25 to my body and i'm like how did we manage it's like well your brain's mushy that's why you're really resilient yeah (laughs) it's because your body's like yeah i know he'll figure this out well eventually we'll start throwing in why are we sore longer (laughs) why aren't we recovering why is it a constant injury and those are the next problems to solve Mm -hmm. yeah yeah have you how do you navigate those now do you, uh, cause I mean, you still test your body. Mm-hmm. just maybe in a slightly different way. Do you, have you re like reimagined the way you train or done hundred percent. And that took a long time too, man. Um, I love training heavy and violent. Mm-hmm. I love the way that I got to train for competing and I can't anymore. It's, it's not scalable. And also like, I guess I'm not that interested in the metric anymore of, and it, this took a long time to get to. Uh, you know, I was really bitter about it and struggled lifting for a long time because I can't lift how I want to lift. This isn't fair. Mm-hmm. You know, my back and knee can't handle squatting heavy. Um, I'll just pay for it. I can still move the weight, but then I'm okay, cool. We can't do anything really good for the next two weeks. <laughs> like walking sucks. Yeah. And so like, where's the, what's the benefit of that? Right. And I found out what this body's metrics are for max lifting. I'll never beat him again. So why am I continuing to try to figure out like, well, what could we do at 38? Yeah. What could we do at this body weight? I, age I don't care. <laughs> I couldn't care any less about doing any of that. Let's go do a new thing. Yeah. Let's go find some new metrics. And like the running one for me, uh, it really clicked on for me. I went and helped one of your athletes, uh, Dan Hogan. Yeah. I love yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, I did support for him at his first ultra uh, hundred miler in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And he came up a bit short and finished like 71 point or yeah, 71.2, I think was what it was. Mm-hmm. And man, being there for that really switched a few things on for me to watch it. Cause so he came in at probably like 3 AM and you know, uh, at, at 60 miles in and he's beat up and he's eating food and doing the whole thing. And we're changing yeah. stuff out. Meanwhile, we drove back up for him to come through as I've been asleep for six hours. Like, I've, I've slept and had three meals since he started running and he's still running. Yeah. Uh, and then he comes around for that and like, we hook him up, tune him up, get all the stuff going for him. And yo, he just runs back into the dark. And I just remember sitting there and it's like, Oh, I don't know if I mentally have what it takes to get out of that chair right now. Yeah. If I'm him, the chair is fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And so watching that really clicked this switch and it was like, and then when he finished, I know he was super bummed that, you know, he didn't get the job done as far as his expectations were. And I told him, I was like, man, I think this is, I think you're, you're an ultra runner. Mm-hmm. Your job is to run really far. You now know 
how far you can run mm-hmm. before the body shuts down. You know your max effort squat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a great metric. And now, a year later, he did the 100. Yeah. What a giant increase of ability in under a year for someone who's running on a regular basis. That's a huge percentage increase of max distance. And now we don't know how far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that finish, that darn finish line stopped him. Darn finish line stopped him, you know? <laughs> well, he's got some bigger plans on the books. Have you, has he talked to you about No, I, have, I haven't had a chance I, to catch up with him. I don't, I'm not, maybe I'm not supposed to say, okay. I, I, I probably shouldn't, because I, I, he Gotta told me. run he, around the world. <laughs> I did, I forgot to, I think, I think he's, it's public knowledge, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask him, I'll put it in the beginning if, if he says it's okay, but, uh, or I'll just have him on to talk about well, it at some point. Do you have any interest, like, in doing big stuff like say like continental divide yeah you know actually so last year i was scheduled to run a trans america which is san francisco to new york it's like a third about a 3100 mile route uh the record is oh. 72 and a half miles a day done in about <laughs> six weeks and i actually <laughs> injured my right ankle like right up to this kind of the month leading into it so i had to cancel it because it's just too much logistics, too many other people involved to justify starting with an injury when it's a basically a guarantee you're going to acquire an injury at some point during yep. that. So is that's coming. Yeah, right. You know, it's if, if it wasn't this spot that was hurt going in, it's going to be something I'm favoring to avoid that spot and it's just going to fall apart. And then, you know, I you can't ask people to cut out six to eight weeks of their life and, and then end up in Nebraska and not moving. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, for so, sure. But I, to answer your question, I, I, I do want to do some of that stuff. So I, I, I love, I like cycling mm-hmm. and uh, I think I could do some bigger cycling trips a lot easier on the body and yeah. it's faster hiking for me. And essentially I move at your speed mm-hmm. with a bike. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> uh, like Lael Wilcox is a, like a ultra rider from, she rides with Specialized. She's in Alaska and she's done the Continental Divide Trail, I think has fastest known time on it. Okay. Um, what a stud. Yeah. What a stud. And like she's doing it and it's self-support mm-hmm. the whole thing. Uh, and like stops in at an emergency room because she's getting pneumonia oh. on the ride. And so like goes into an emergency room and is talking to the doctor and the doctor is like, so what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm doing the continental divide race and blah, 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 blah. And he, she's like, when does that start? And she's like two weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> about a day and a half ago. <laughs> Uh, and he's like, she's like, uh, I'm currently on the clock. Yeah. Yeah. So hurry up. <laughs> yeah. And so like got back on the bike and worked through the sickness over the next couple of days and like got back moving and like, man. Yeah. And just seeing that or like trying to get a fastest known time on an event like that has so many variables mm-hmm. that aren't up to you. Right. Like, well, we didn't expect it to rain for five straight days. And then through Colorado, uh, this section that should have taken me uh, two and a half hours took me 20 because it's just caked road of mud and mm-hmm. I can't go up the next hill. I can't carry my bike up it. Yeah. You know, that those type of things of like what incredible will to just keep slogging through it. Yeah. Well, and that's why I asked you about the ultra marathon. I'm not trying to destroy you or anything like that, <laughs> but I just think your mindset fits it perfectly because like I could see you in that situation. You'd find that spot where, oh, I just spent three hours on this. 20 mile stretch longer than I planned instead of dwelling on that for the next two days, you'd be like, well, that happened now let's move forward. And what, what can I control going forward? And that's what you want. That's the hardest thing I think to teach people because unless they, until they actually like do it, it's hard for them to maybe connect that and actually actualize it in their mind. So you get this situation where you're going to hit rough patches 
the number of them that you can push through in a timely manner is going to determine how good your day is in most cases. Obviously, there's a certain number you want to try to avoid before you start losing a ton of time and miss goals. But I eventually, you're going to hit something you didn't expect in 100 miles, certainly in the Continental Divide, and have to push through that and have to forget about it and think about what's ahead and keep going. And and that's, I think, the really interesting part. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to do some bigger, like, I think I'd like to do the Colorado Trail at some point, which I think is like 500 miles, yep. mm-hmm. um, whether that's mountain bike or hike it. Yeah, uh, I know the guy who's got the FKT on that. So before you do it, so I'll connect fast. you with him. Con- and you just, can have I'm my- sure his information <laughs> is so valuable for me of uh, how I'm going to approach it. Um, I'm like, looking to cover about 15 miles a day. It'll take. <laughs> He's like, what? Uh, man, I, I, I dig it, right? And for me, kind of that, thing I talked about, like that anxiety about time left. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things I notice is the less that I'm in routine, slower time feels, mm. you know, like, so today, because I'm really busy and I'm in a new city and I've got a lot going on. Today's going to be a long day that I'm very present for. Mm-hmm. And so more days like that slow down time for me. And so the more days I can have that I'm forced to be present and whether that's Doing those six hours in Bryce Canyon, those six hours do not blend in yeah. with the other six hour time slots in my life that I've <laughs> blown through on the couch. You know, how many of those things disappear? You know, I, I had that kind of realization when I was hurt about the way time kind of just was my perception of it. And it was, I, I remember I had an eight week after one of my, sur- I had two surgeries that were eight weeks, no toe touch pressure. And so, like, I'm in a straight leg brace. You're not even on one of those wheeled things. Like, I have to use crutches to get around my house and not put my foot on the ground. Mm-hmm. So you spend most of it on the couch, staring at the TV, looking at your phone, doing that. Or I'd go in my garage gym and sit on the bench and do whatever I could with 25-pound dumbbells to slaughter myself yeah. and then make my way back in the house. Uh, but I don't have anything significant to say that, like, those eight weeks disappear. Boom, boom. Front to back, I don't have a great memory of anything in particular that happens in any of it. But if I go to a trip like in, I'm in Iceland for 10 days, I have an infinite number of things to talk about that happened in that trip. And it's because time slows down because I'm on, like I'm not filling in the gaps with my brain and autopilot. Like I'm switched in. And I think that really matters to be present in those type of things. And so if I can create more opportunities that slow down time, I'm extending my life yeah. perceptually. You're banking more experiences. So then like, even if like you're, you're the type of guy who, if you died at age 50, you'd probably have more experiences than five people who lived to a hundred combined. Pretty good chance. Like so. last year alone. I mean, I, I went to Iceland for three weeks, did the Bryce Canyon run. Uh, I'm going to miss some stuff too. I did a month long road trip, uh, in around Montana and stuff like that to go see some friends around 4th of July I went to Africa and did four days of whitewater rafting on the Zambezi with some friends. I got to sleep on the bank of that river under the stars in the sand, like for a night. Like that day will never blend in. Yeah. Uh, nor will almost drowning <laughs> earlier <laughs> that day. Definitely had like we, we flipped our boat over in some pretty ugly rapids on the Zambezi. And I remember being underwater long enough with my life jacket, just balled up. Mm-hmm. You know, letting it wait to send you to the surface. Oh, and so geez. like your eyes are closed and you're underwater and like you see it get lighter and then it's dark again. Oh. And like, just wait for it. And I don't know how long I'm under, but I'm very aware that without this borrowed life jacket, 
from a guy that was like, yep, that fits and like secures <laughs> it. Like I'm dead. Like that was it. This borrowed hundred dollar life jacket is the only reason that I get I'm to alive. Continue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so like that day doesn't blend in and then went from there straight to Dubai. And even the travel of flying through Ethiopia and going through all that type of stuff was stuff that makes me really uncomfortable because man, the unknown stuff, I get anxiety about it. And so it, man, I just, that fight that routine wants to have in you is such a strong pull to say, no, we're doing uncomfortable things, even if it's traveling by myself and getting to Dubai and doing that trip to watch people, you know, compete. And I got, I got to take like five once in a lifetime trips last year. And then this year's the same. I have these four motorcycle trips with Indian. And then I've got three trips with uh, the company Trova trip where we're doing those trips and people get to come with us and we get to share that experience in other places. And so I, I love it. I love that side of it, that it slows down time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way to think about it. Cause I think like sometimes when I get busy like that and do cool stuff, I feel like time's flying by in the moment. But then when you look back at it, you're like, okay, that two weeks feels like I just did two months worth of stuff. So then when you reflect back on it, it feels like a lot longer than it actually was. Yeah, I try to the same way with training. Like I will try to build in a deload Mm -hmm. as far as with work too. Yeah. And so like, all right, this week we're home. We're going to schedule less. And so that gives me some time. And for me, it's really important to take some stillness and take some time to, to integrate and process like what information did I get in the last two weeks that was valuable to me that I want to incorporate in my life to continue to go forward with instead of just letting it pass through mm-hmm. and, but having time to deload and let your body readapt to the new stimulus. If it's important for my training, why wouldn't it be important for me emotionally or with my brain or any of the other stuff? And the more I feel about it that way, the more it seems to work for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know any science behind it. I have a general studies degree from LSU. I couldn't be any <laughs> less scientific or smart. Well, that's why you know guys like Dr. Andy Gelpin. <laughs> that's right. I have to I have to have smart friends. He can cover that. If he needs to hit anybody up about Highland Games, he doesn't need to know that information. Send me a text. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I, I did want to ask you another question about just like everything you've done in your life. It's like a variety of different physical and mental activities And when I think of just preparing yourself to be optimal, whether it's something that you're going to be a world champion at or something, you're just going to try to get as good as you can personally, nutrition plays a pretty big piece to that puzzle. Have you done anything strategic with your nutrition over those years or has it just been like fuel in? Um, I've gotten much better at it and I've got more dialed into that part of it. Um, I think whenever I was doing strongman powerlifting, really it's, it's eat. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm glad I'm not eating that way anymore. Yeah. Like during that point, like some, some competitions, I think the biggest I got in strongman was like 318 for one of the shows. And like that show had like a 360 pound farmer's carry per hand for 50 feet and back. Mm-hmm. So weighing 300 pounds, weighing about as much as Two the things in each of my hands side. is nice. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying to run with it. And so, um, I mean, at that point, trying to put that weight on and get it on, like, yeah, twice a week, I'm going to order two large meat lovers pizzas and put them face to face and eat all of it. Yeah. And like whatever I don't finish is why I'm not winning. Like uh-huh. look at it that way. And now that I'm building a machine to do a totally different thing, I want to feed it the same way. You know, don't, don't fall into that habit. 
And so now, you know, working with nutrition companies and trying to get leaner and lose weight and see what else I can get the body to do has been really neat. I wanted for a really long time for there to be some other answer than the food going in being as wildly important as it is to body composition or performance. But of course it is. Of course it is. Why would the engine operate without gas in it? Why would it operate with bad gas in it? Like, we can't just pour mud into this Ferrari. Mm-hmm. And so the better I've got at that, the way better I notice performance. The way better I got it. I've uh, worked now with a meal prep company, uh, Nutrition Solutions, for the last couple of years. And I've probably 90% of my meals, I'll just eat those. And they're 500 calories a piece. Shovel it in. Move on with my day. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to really let loose on a meal, I need to know that like there's an experience there. Like there's something that I'm going to remember the meal for. Otherwise they're fuel. If we're going to go to a restaurant with frenzy, I'm there for the conversation, not for the, you know, the, uh, awesome blossom, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, keeping that in track. And so the, the nutrition thing, uh, really helped a ton. And I noticed how much it really dialed in how much inflammation I had. I started really changing nutrition once I was hurt because mm-hmm. any percentage I could get to remove pain, I had to do. So did ketogenic diet for about a year, um, lost some weight. And then I switched to doing a carnivore diet for probably nine months. I did a keto pescatarian for a bit just to see like, what, what if I don't have red meat? And chicken, right. mm-hmm. and I didn't see any noticeable difference in blood markers or in my own personal feelings. And so, red meat's going right back. Yeah. <laughs> We're very happy to eat steak all the time. Um, I process fat very well. Uh, carbohydrates are a bit more of a problem for me. Um, fat's been a great fuel. And so, after that time of switching to a fat burner from doing the keto for so long intermittent fasting and anything else has been great. And I've kind of now where we're at in my life, I think living in a bit more of a caloric deficit most days is probably better for you. I feel less sluggish. I feel way more driven. I feel on point. Um, Man, the nutrition part is such a key. And why wouldn't it be? Like, why wouldn't that be a key? I wanted there to be another reason. Like I wanted there to be something else that allowed me to eat I've tried plenty of performance enhancers to hope that that was like, whoa, if we take this, I can still eat what I want. Untrue. <laughs> Untrue. I really wanted it. I promise if I find something that was like, I get abs and donuts, sick. <laughs> I don't have it. <laughs> uh, man, I've, tried, I've tried everything to see what will make me better, mm-hmm. You know, whether that's you know, performance enhancers or psychedelics or really anything. I'm, I'm pretty open to it. I'm happy to guinea pig myself and see how it feels. Yeah. So it was kind of the pain side of things that got you more focused on that and probably the weight loss when you decided you didn't need to be 300 pounds any longer. Yeah. It wasn't going to help the knee <laughs> right? being yeah, that big. Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, losing weight. And the other side of that too is for a really long time, essentially ever as an athlete being that's bigger fat, whatever I'm going to call it. Uh, and I was, I was fucking, I was fat. That's fine to say. Um, what was it that Mark called you? At? The fat owl. The fat owl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that was at the Arnold one year. Uh, I'd gone to see him, and it, Mark and I know each other, and so he and I were chatting, and then uh, Jesse Burdick was up there as well, and, and so one of them was like, who's that? And uh, the other one's like, oh, it's Matt Vincent, Highland Game world champion. And they're like, looks like a fat owl. He's a world champion of anything. <laughs> no respect for None. the Highland Game champion. None. And so that nickname <laughs> stuck for a bit. Uh, it was great. Um yeah, so once 
I knew once I got out of the sport, like I need to lose weight. Otherwise saying I'm big for the sport's a lie. Right. It just means I'm lazy. <laughs> and so I don't want to be that. And again, that's a thing I'm in a hundred percent control of mm-hmm. is what goes in my mouth and then figuring out how to track it and learning about that and how to properly fuel up for another thing the next day has been really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Do you track your stuff with like an app or anything like that? Or is it just like, here's the things that I know work for me and now I know about what's in them so I can, oh, you, you use a meal prep thing. So you kind of yeah, have, I do now. Okay. Uh, when I started, I tracked everything. Mm-hmm. I tracked everything. I got a food scale because I don't know. Yeah. Right. And I, I still like, if I all of a sudden have body composition goals and want to change it, I have to go back to tracking uh, instead of just being intuitive. Um, and it, it always works. I'm like, oh yeah, you're overeating about 300 calories a day. Mm-hmm. And just immediately get back to switching it over and make those decisions. Uh, man, something that came from the run training that I, that I want to talk about with strength athletes that uh-huh. I did not expect, I really didn't expect was through that 16 weeks and then after doing the event, I didn't realize how much more endurance it gave me to operate and perform all day at everything. I just have a bigger gas tank. Mm. And so when I finished that run and being aware of like what new super ability that I felt like it gave me, yeah. it was like, all right, so what's the least amount I need to run a week to, to hold on that. to this? <laughs> and I figured out it's about four or five Ks. Like uh-huh. if I can walk or run four or five hours a week, I seem to hold on pretty good. And then it's not really hard if I want to jump back into a thing. I don't have to give it all back. Mm-hmm. Like what's the least I have to do to hold on to the most of this. And like, I'm not an ultra runner. I want to go do a, a run. You know, I, I'm not trying to compete and be great at, do they have a Clydesdale category of like big guys? Oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I think actually they're, I'm not sure that most events, I don't think have a division in ultra running like that. They used to in shorter. I'm not sure that might not, that may have gotten kind of cast away in the last few years <laughs> due to like, PC uh, nature yeah, of it. Yeah. Well, they just call it larger. Like, why, <laughs> why, why is that offensive? Clydesdale horses are awesome. Yeah, they are. Uh-huh. So cool. Well, I mean, and it's cool to see. So, I mean, because it's like, like, how are we? It's just looking at it through like a very specific lens when you look at it negatively because it's like you get someone like Nick Bear and it's like <sighs> Nick Bear would be a Clydesdale, but no one is going to be like, oh man, I'd hate to look like Nick Bear. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> I'd happily go change right now if we can. <laughs> Guy looks great. <laughs> Uh, there's a couple of people like that. You're just like, wow. Okay. So just everything works out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, so the nutrition was something that kind of dialed you in for the pain tolerance thing. And, and was, were you looking at certain foods that were like inflammatory markers for you that was a big mover for that? Or was it the reduction of carbohydrates that you felt kind of helped out with that a bit? That or? was really the big picture. It was mm-hmm. like, let's reduce carbohydrates. I know that allegedly doing ketogenic diet or carnivore will be Mm anti-inflammatory. And for the amount of pain that I'm dealing with, if it's, if my pain window was basically every day starting at a three and then typically would end around seven or eight, Mm -hmm. um, if I can remove a percentage from simply changing my food, I have to, Mm -hmm. it buys me more time to, to be able to move around and do things all day. I mean, by that point, like I can't walk more than 200 yards or 400 yards a day before it's like, I'm, I'm done. Like, I remember talking to my ex-wife and just being like, oh, I'm not going to that. Like, how far do I have to walk? I'm, yeah. I, I'm not going. 
Like, is there a chair I can, and like, ugh, to be that guy, to hear that come out of your mouth and know that you mean it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was so rough. This, this thing has done anything I've ever asked it to do since jump. I feel so fortunate that my soul or whatever it is got dropped into this machine. Yeah. And I've got to just run with it nonstop. And now, cool. I've been not nice to it. <laughs> it broke. I got lucky enough to get out of that. I won't break it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor do I know when it returns back to me not being able to do stuff. And so in the meantime, let's go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's an interesting kind of topic too, I think was, I mean, you had a, was it 18 month layoff with all the knee operations? Is that what you Three said? Three years. Three years. Okay. So when you finally get to that point where like, okay, it's working again. What was that like kind of starting from square one? So, you know, through the knee surgeries and doing rehab, right? Like there was a really big nasty pain I was chasing on the medial side of my knee where we did this oats procedure. So that's basically they drill this 30 millimeter hole into the bottom of your femur and replace it with fresh cartilage. Mm -hmm. Um, As we've now learned that me and cadaver tissue aren't great. Yeah. Uh, The one on the medial side of my knee. So I had three of those in the bottom of my femur. Uh, The one on the medial side just never quite healed. And so there's kind of a void behind part of it. And so when I'm walking, it's essentially fracturing and moving Mm. all the time. And so there wasn't at any point that like, if I take six weeks off, this will heal. Yeah. It won't do it anymore. Um, You know, through, through all of that, it was, it was train rehab. And then all of a sudden that pain would come back. And I like, that's the one I kept looking for is like, when does that show back up? When Mm -hmm. does that stabbing eight out of 10 pain show up in my knee that, when it's really bad, shows up every time I exhale. Oh, geez. Cool. Yeah. And so now Dang, I, I can't notice, even breathe anymore without so getting hurt. <laughs> crazy, right? And like, I don't know if you've done breath work or any of that type of stuff, but like, I found out through that course of time, I'm essentially shallow breathing mm. all the time. So I'm chest shallow breathing all day, staying in flight or fight. And um, that's not ideal either for cortisol levels or any of the other type of stuff, as I've come to learn. But then, through all the surgeries, like that pain came back. Like at some point, a week in, you know, a week after surgery or a month into rehab, it's back. Mm-hmm. And like you try to figure out the ways to navigate it. Like, okay, okay. So we'll make deals with it of like, well, I'll do this today and then I'll give you two days off, mm-hmm. you know, talking to your body. Yeah. Uh, and then when I did the total knee replacement, it, so they get you up and move that day. And so, like, I'm walking down the hall with a with you know a walker and a lady holding a belt around me, and yeah, it's gone. It's the first time it's been gone, gone, and it's never come back. And so, like, having that gone was like, okay, cool. Now we can at least start again. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling that during the rehab, I was like, man, if you can just let me do the work, I'll do it. Like, I don't need help. You just can't tell me there's no light that uh-huh. way to go that this is it like this is how the leg works and that was one of the final discussions i had with my surgeon i was like look at this if the t-, i was like i need some information i remember talking and crying to him of like i need to know this is going to be better and if not we need to figure out how to get rid of the leg because yeah i won't run the clock out in my life this way yeah like, i can't fake legs better fake legs better than me not being able to get outside yeah yeah when you can't move it 
couldn't and do it. It's paying eight, you know, nine to ten all the time. <sighs> and, and like, I'm not going to sit and eat opiates. I know where that goes. Mm-hmm. That's not a great fruitful path. Uh, I've eaten plenty of them. Uh, they serve a great purpose. If pain gets to an eight, that's right. what they're for. If yeah. pain stays around a two, cannabis seemed to work great for me. Sure. Uh, and then once it once it started moving, it was a real struggle because I wanted to go back and lift the way that I wanted to, yeah. but I can't. Uh-huh. And so then it took time to decide, you know, that training and strength training are important. They're going to be part of my life in whatever regards I'm allowed to have them part of my life. And so I adapt training to get back what works? Can I, can I deadlift with a trap bar from a higher position? Can I belt squat instead of ever put a bar on my back? You know, so you start figuring out what still allows you to stress the machine enough that it creates adaptation. Mm-hmm. And that's really all I'm trying to do anyway at the end of the day is stress it enough so it adapts, it gets stronger, and we repeat and do it again. And you want to stress it as much as I can without going over the line. I'd like to tap that line as many times as I can, yeah. but crossing that line got really expensive. And so I don't really cross that line anymore too much. How long did it take to kind of find where, well, I, I, I mean, the line moves, right? So like that <laughs> yeah. first day where you got clearance to move with the knee replacement is a lot different than this morning when you worked out with Nick. I'm yeah, sure. of course. <laughs> yeah. So like, was it, how long did it take you to kind of figure out like, this is what my body tells me when I'm at that line given my current fitness or is that, was that really hard or is it something you've just never really figured out for sure? It's, it's, it's day to day or was for a long time. Uh, and like, now I know what will beat it up. It's pretty consistent information. Whereas like when it was bad and it was in pain, it wasn't So it wasn't as varied on like what I ate or what I did. It just some days sucked mm-hmm. and stayed at an eight. And now it's, it, it works consistently. Like I know what's going to aggravate it. So I don't do those things. I also know what really helps it, whether that's sauna or cold tub or whatever. And so I do those things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really strict about those things. Uh, and then man, figuring out the new operation manual essentially for what yeah. this thing can do, man, the, the run, the run thing really did me a huge life favor. It really did because I finished that event and I just overall remember feeling of like, I'm not fragile anymore. I'm not like I can take damage. Yeah. If nothing and else, I can do this. I can take damage. Mm-hmm. And I hurt the way I'm supposed to hurt from doing hard things, not my skeleton. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it felt really good for the first time to not feel like a broken thing again. And that was, I mean, I had knee surgery, total, total knee replacement was in January or April of 2019. And I did that Bryce Canyon run in well, last year in May. So that's when the real switch flipped. It took two plus years after total knee replacement for me to finally feel like, you know, we can, we can try things again. Like we can take a damage. We can, we can, we can move. We're not so scared to fall down mm-hmm. like man i can't get on my mountain bike if i fall i don't know that i walk again that that's the real fear i had yeah um and that's not there anymore i'll happily fall down it's fine awesome well it sounds like you're in a great spot physically comparatively where than where you were a few years back so. yeah we'll see if it holds <laughs> <laughs> well there's only one way to find out right? that's exactly it i'm gonna find <laughs> and out, you're gonna so, find you know, out yeah <laughs> and and being okay with knowing that mm-hmm. is good too right like none of don't force me to do Highland games, man. 
Um, I don't know if, do you know uh, Kelly Starrett? Yeah, I know. I know who. Incredible guy. You guys should absolutely meet. Uh, one of my favorite humans, been a mentor of mine for a really long time. And um, I mean, went to Africa with him last year, did the two weeks on the Grand Canyon with him a few years ago, rafting and just an incredible dude. Um, and he said it to me because he's now total knee replacement as well. Okay. Uh, he's like, you know, whenever my time's over on this planet and they cut this tree in half and examine the rings, <laughs> there's a decade of fire damage. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Tree grows different around it afterwards. But I did that. You know, I'm not trying to get out of here without scars and beat up. And when, when my time's up and this machine gets returned back in, <laughs> there's a like, I just hope there. they just look at it and they're like, incinerate. What this guy do? <laughs> just yeah. pass it over there. <laughs> it's just half duct taped together. It looks like some old car. <laughs> That's it. I'll just be in this weird Mad Max vehicle the rest of my life is basically what I'll try to build. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Awesome. Well, Matt, uh, you've been really gracious with your time. It's been awesome to get to know you uh, today and when we met a couple weeks ago when you came into Austin. So I'm looking forward to any of your return trips that you'll carve out a little bit of time to hang out. So uh, I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know where they can find you. And uh, I guess we've kind of talked about what you're up to. So you maybe don't need to do that. Perfect. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you can find me. Instagram is I hate Matt Vincent. And then I think it's the same. It's same on TikTok. Um, which I'm trying to figure out. Uh, it's a whole new world. <laughs> it's a whole new world. Uh, it seems be consistent at it. it seems to be yeah. one of the first steps. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, um, so podcast is the name of my show. Uh, it's everywhere that you listen to podcasts. It's also on YouTube. We do full video content as well on my YouTube channel is Matthew Vincent. Um, I have Habit Coffee Company at uh, yournewhabit.com. And hate brand goods is the hate.com. And then um, recently in November, I started a uh, mentorship group and I wanted to work with people kind of on the concept of making time count. And so that is called uh, the 1612 and is in reference to when my father passed away um, in 2014 from pancreatic cancer. Uh, He had died at 62 the day before I turned 31. And I just remember feeling halfway. Mm -hmm. And man, that, that disease 11 months start to finish and you don't know that's coming i don't know that that's not six weeks away from me but in the meantime i'm going to make the most i'm not waiting for permission in my 50s to take on life for retiring for any of that i'll happily die tired and what that means at 31 if 62 is it that's 1612 weeks to live man and all my dreams have to get done in that window and i'm 38 now like 1218 weeks so let's get going mm-hmm. not interested in sitting around I'll happily die tired well you are the person who's going to take advantage of each and every one of those as far as i can tell so it's been awesome to hear your story and, and chat for a bit brother i appreciate it so much um again thanks for having and i'm sure i'll love to have you on my show maybe we'll get you up to st louis and come yeah check out the gym and do everything else. Heck yeah so, that'd be a blast yeah thank you man awesome thanks again Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. 
I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens and Element. Athletic Greens comes packed with 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. And Element is my go-to electrolyte source. You can head over to zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for discounts and links to all the show sponsors.